All right, morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. So Zach's father, Jake, is preaching at Pastor Tim Elliott's church this morning for him. And so when I open in prayer, I'm going to pray for Jake also. Father, I thank you for Pastor Tim and his wonderful faithfulness. I believe over 40 years at his church here in Woodland. Thank you that he thought to reach out to see if Jake could preach for him this Sunday. So I do pray that you'd be with Jake. I do pray that you'd help him to preach well and bless and encourage and challenge and edify those who are present for your word going forth from him. And I would pray the same for us this morning, Lord. We look at these verses. I think they can be fairly challenging uh, regarding the understanding of them, uh, misunderstood perhaps at times as a blessing for me to dig into them this morning and kind of look to the end times, to Christ's second coming and the battle of Armageddon. There's a graphic nature to these verses, but it's a graphic nature that you've, you've put in them, Lord, especially as we turn to Revelation 19. So ju- just give us a sobriety to judgment. We know that you're loving, merciful, forgiving, and gracious, but also wrathful and holy, and, and that you judge sin, Lord, and we thank you for all of your attributes. We come here to praise you and worship you for them, Lord, and this morning we'll be focusing more on those attributes of judgment and wrath that are poured out on Christ-rejecting people. And so I pray, Lord, if there's any Christ-rejecting people here, that you'd grant them repentance and that they would be saved and that they wouldn't be recipients of your wrath. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. So tell this morning's sermon, The Battle of Armageddon and When Will Be Taken and the Other Left. So that maybe that rivals for one of the longest titles that I've had before. So you can tell from it we're going to be talking about the battle of armageddon and then these verses at the end of luke 17 that i think can be confusing for people at times sunday mornings we're working our way through luke's gospel verse by verse and we find ourselves at luke 17 33. so over the last few months i've met with a couple jehovah's witnesses they were not the planned meetings that i would have with the mormons who came to my office and we'd sit down and have bible studies instead they were individuals who are walking around came by our house i invited them to sit on the porch and we sat down and had and in the first meeting their children were there they had brought children with them so i was particularly thankful that their children had the opportunity to hear the things i was sharing with their parents and then another couple came by an older couple tried to sit with them they didn't want they were not able to spend as much time with me and then i believe yesterday they came by the house and i wasn't available but katie met with them and when katie and i were going over the sermon together we both recognized that they seem to know what they believe and they seem to understand the end times and they can often point to chapter and verse and so my heart would be for you to be equipped for any of those conversations that you might have with them or really anyone or even if you didn't have any conversations with anyone just that you would understand the end times better god wants us to know how things conclude few things are more significant than the second coming of christ probably only second to the first coming of christ in terms of importance and so it's discouraging to think that there would be christians who would not be able to do the same as jehovah's witnesses and point to chapters and verses about what they believe and i don't want that to be the case with this church so i do hope that this sermon can equip you to better understand end times we're going to start at verse 31 for context jesus says on that day let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away and likewise let the one who is in the field not turn back so the context is the second coming of christ we're going to go to revelation 19 and see that the battle of armageddon is in view 
And so this is the time of great destruction, Jesus defeating his enemies. And so it is not the time to be returning to your house for your possessions. Remember, the context of all these verses we've been in over these weeks is the second coming. And the point of this verse is that when Christ returns, that's not the time to get off your housetop and go into the house. That's not the time to be concerned about what's in the house. It's the time to be concerned about what's in heaven. So it's not the time to turn back. And then we get right after that, the Bible's premier example of someone who turned back. And who's that? Lot's wife. Verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Unless I'm mistaken, there are only two people in Scripture we're told to remember. We just remembered one of them. Who's one of them? Come on, this is a Sunday school answer. Jesus, right? We remember him weekly in communion, which is a blessing to me that our church celebrates that weekly. And then the other person we're told to remember is Lot's wife. It is surprising that we are told to remember her because we know almost nothing about her. We don't know when she was born. We don't know where she was born. More than likely, she was born in Sodom. That's where Lot seemed to meet her. But I'm inferring that. We're not told that. We don't know who she was born to. We don't know her parents. We don't even know her name. So what is it that we're supposed to remember about her? Well, we're not supposed to remember that she died because lots of people die. (laughs) The Old Testament is filled with people who died, and we're not told to remember them. Instead, we're supposed to remember that she died when she had been so close to salvation. She was on the threshold of deliverance. We could almost say she was saved because the inhabitants of Sodom did not make it out of the city, but she did. She had the city's destruction behind her. More than likely, she was leaving while the fire and brimstone was raining down. She had escaped that. She had her husband at her side. She had her children at her side. She had this life ahead of her with a righteous man. You could be troubled by that, by Lot's behavior, but we know from Second Peter three times, Lot is called a righteous man. So who wouldn't consider her saved? But she ended up perishing, ended up perishing with the people of Sodom. And similarly, people in our day can be so close to salvation on the threshold of it, but still people with perish with the people of the world, as we'll see when we go to Revelation 19, as much as Lot's wife perished with the people of Sodom. Now, before we read the next verse, I want to briefly explain something. A paradox is a statement that seems contradictory, inconsistent, or even absurd, but is still what? True. And there are several paradoxes in Scripture. Here's just a few of them. Matthew 23, 11, Whoever wants to be greatest should be what? Everyone's servant. Mark 9, 35, Anyone who wants to be first must be last. 2 Corinthians 6, 10, This might be a little tougher, But as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. So you can hear the, the very paradoxical nature. If you're sorrowful, you're not rejoicing. If you're poor, you don't make others rich. If you have nothing, you don't possess everything. 2 Corinthians 12, 10 and 13, 9 say, when we are weak, we are... Well, that's pretty paradoxical, isn't it? You can't be weak and strong. Those are mutually exclusive statements. But when we're weak, we tend to rely more... The reality behind it is when we're weak, we tend to rely less on ourselves, more on the Lord, which makes us strong then. James 1, 2, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Joy is obviously the last thing you experience in trials. And perhaps you can guess why we're having this discussion. 
we have reached one of the most well-known paradoxes in Scripture. Verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And this brings us to lesson one, give up this life to receive eternal life. Give up this life to receive eternal life. So you probably immediately notice the paradoxical nature of this verse. You can't preserve your life and lose it. Preserving a life means you didn't lose it. You can't lose your life and keep it. Losing your life means you did not keep it. The verse is easier to understand if we break it in half. So when Jesus says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, he's referring to people who live for this life or pursue this world or pursue everything this world offers and end up in the process losing their lives. They will not find eternal life. Then Jesus says, but whoever loses his life will keep it, refers to people who give up their earthly lives. People that wake up in the morning and say, Lord, my life is yours. Do with me as you will. Use my life for your glory and honor. I'm losing my life in the sense that I give it to you for your service. And these people end up finding eternal life. It's like Paul said in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ. We surrender to him. We invite him to use us in whatever ways he deems best. It's the, Roman, it's the language of Romans 12.1. Present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. No longer living for ourselves, living for the Lord. Jim Elliott's famous quote came to mind. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Now, verse 33 so here's, here's kind of what we do, and I would, I would discourage you from doing this. I would encourage you, as best as possible, in your Bible reading, to look for context and see why verses present themselves or how they flow from previous verses and then into future verses. Now, this verse kind of looks like it's just plucked here, but it actually flows perfectly from the previous verses and I'll give us a lesson that presents it. Look at lesson two. Lot's wife sought to preserve her life but lost it. And Noah and Lot lost their lives to keep them. Lot's wife sought to preserve her life but lost it. And Noah and Lot lost their lives to keep them. So this verse perfectly captures the three previous examples that Luke was describing. Lot's wife looked back to her true home, to Sodom. That's what she valued. That's what she wanted more than the next life that God had for her. So she's a perfect example of someone who sought to preserve her life but lost it. Now, on the other hand, Noah and Lot preserved their lives by being willing to lose them. Lot was willing, or excuse me, well, Lot, Lot was willing to abandon his life in Sodom, and he preserved his life in the process. Noah was willing to lose his life, let go of his life in the pre-flood world, and get on the ark, and he preserved his life in the process. And so the application for us is it's a question of what we desire. 
if we desire to preserve our lives in this world then we end up losing them but if we're willing to lose our lives for christ's sake then we can keep them now considering we're striving to understand context and the context of this passage is the second coming it begs the question well what does all of this have to do with the second coming well that's a great question if we long for Jesus' second coming then we desire to lose this life if you want to see Christ return you want this life to be over to long for Jesus' second coming is desiring that this life as we know it comes to an end so we can begin the next life in his kingdom so in this way we preserve our lives by looking forward to Christ's second coming but people who love this life who don't want to see Jesus return who say well you know if Christ returns then I have to stop this or I can't do this anymore this comes to an end in my life or people clinging to this life and because they don't want this life to end they end up losing their lives in the process as we will see in the following verses so look with me at verse 34. Luke says I tell you in that night there will be two in one bed one will be taken and the other left there will be two women grinding together one will be taken and the other left and then some of you don't have verse 36 but I'll read it two men will be in the field one will be taken and the other left now verse 36 is in some of your Bibles if you have the King James it probably contains verse 36 without a footnote if you have the new King James you probably have a footnote that says that the NU which is referring to the manuscript that was used for the more modern translations the new King James probably has a footnote that says that manuscript of omits verse 36. now if you have one of the more modern translations like the ESV NIV or NASB because those Bibles use the NU your Bible probably says something like the oldest manuscripts do not include verse 36 or the most reliable manuscripts omit verse 36. now it goes outside the scope of this sermon for me to go into detail about why you'll occasionally see a footnote like this dealing with a word or a phrase or a verse but I have two pieces of good news for you one piece of good news is that late last year I taught a Sunday school class explaining this in detail so if you want to go back and listen to those messages you'll understand how we came to have the Bibles that we do and it's a good discussion of manuscripts and you'll understand why you see footnotes at times in your Bible saying that the NU or the MSS the oldest manuscripts don't have these verses but I don't want to give much attention to it here since you can go and listen to that and if you have trouble finding it let me know or let pastor know and we'll get it to you the second piece of good news that I have for you is whether your Bible does or doesn't contain verse 36 is fairly irrelevant because verse 36 doesn't change anything it is just another example of what the previous two verses are discussing one person being taken and another person being left now I want to briefly remind you about the prophetic or future timeline or order of events so that these verses make sense now fortunately we've been building up to this in our earlier sermons so you have some familiarity that's going to let you grasp this I think much easier in Jesus's first coming now bless me in Jesus's first coming he established his kingdom on the earth okay bless me bless me how how did he how did he establish his kingdom on the earth in his first coming 
okay, come on, guys, come on. I've got to go back. We're going to be here all afternoon. I've got to go back and play that sermon. In Jesus' first coming, he established his kingdom spiritually. In his second coming, he's going to come and establish his kingdom physically. Okay, so Jesus' first coming, he establishes his kingdom spiritually on the earth. At his second coming, he will physically establish his kingdom on the earth. And here is the order of events, which is on your bulletin. Leading up to the second coming and immediately after that, a few things are omitted, like the marriage supper of the Lamb. I just wanted to try to give a, a brief order to the major events. You've got the rapture of the church, the seven-year tribulation, the second coming of Christ, the battle of Armageddon, and then the millennial kingdom, which is the physical kingdom established on the earth. Now, this is where it gets a little confusing. In the following verses, which of these events does it look like, does it look like these verses describe? Okay, one more time. The following verses about one person being taken and one person being left look like they're describing which of these events? It looks like they're describing the rapture. But dear Bibles have headings around verse 20. What is the title or heading in your Bible around verse 20? The coming of the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom of God, the second coming, the second, king, second coming of Christ. So the context is the second coming, which is seven years after the rapture. In other words, we cannot be looking at the rapture here because we're dealing with the second coming, which is separate from the rapture, by at least seven years. These verses are not, and this is going to become clear as we look at the verses, but these verses are not describing the rapture. Instead, they're describing what's going to occur at the second coming of Christ with some people being taken and some people being left. And I want to give you a lesson that hopefully makes this clear. This brings us to lesson three. People are taken to the battle of Armageddon or left to enter the kingdom. People are taken to the battle of Armageddon or they're left to enter the kingdom. Now, here's what I can't tell you. I cannot tell you how the people who are taken are taken. I don't know what it looks like. And I suppose if the Lord really wanted us to know, he would give us greater detail. My suspicion is it might be kind of like with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, where Philip baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch, and then what? Philip's taken away, but not to judgment like these people are. So I wish I could tell you, I don't know, but there's some way in which people are going to be taken and then brought to the valley of Megiddo, where they're going to wage war against Christ and lose disastrously, as we will see. Listen to the way the parallel account in Matthew's gospel is worded. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away or took them away. And then so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. So in other words, Matthew talks about the way the flood took people away in judgment and said it's going to be the same at the second coming that the people who are taken away are taken away in judgment. So when you think of the people being taken away to the battle of Armageddon to be judged, think of the way the wicked people in Noah's day were taken away by the flood itself. So it says very, very clearly that we should have that imagery in mind. Now, the people who are left, they're left to enter because they're not destroyed at the battle of Armageddon. They're not defeated by Christ. They're left then to enter the kingdom of God 
or the millennial kingdom which is the physical establishment of christ's kingdom on the earth they're left to enter that kingdom and think of these people being left to enjoy a new beginning the way that noah and his family were left to enjoy a new beginning after the whole population of the earth was taken in the flood or the way the law and his family were left to enjoy or at least his wife would have been if she hadn't looked back a new beginning after the people in sodom were destroyed by the fire and brimstone listen to the way it's worded in the amplified this is particularly interesting my wife reads the amplified all the time so she's the one that pointed this out to me luke 17 34 says i tell you on that night when the messiah comes or when the second coming occurs there will be two sleeping in one bed and the one and then it says the non-believer will be taken away in judgment and the other the believer will be left there will be two women grinding at the mill together the one the non-believer will be taken away in judgment and the other the believer will be left and then there's two footnotes in the amplified listen to this one of the footnotes says this is not the sudden catching up or rapture of believers as described in first thessalonians 4 13 to 18 when christ returns in the air not to the earth and gathers believers to him and this is one of the premier differences between the rapture and the second coming at the rapture christ meets the church in the air not to step down on the earth or that would be the second coming that would be a return the second coming is when he does step down on the earth the second footnote in the amplified says the believers are left and will be with christ on the earth during the millennium they're left to enter it now the disciples look at the question they ask in verse 37 where lord they said to him where lord and they mean where are the people who are judged taken to the people who are taken away where are they taken to jesus goes on to say where the corpse is there the vultures will gather now some bibles might say eagles instead of vultures because the greek word can be translated either way but it's more appropriate to think of vultures because what do vultures do they circle over carrion is that the right way to say it c-a-r-r-i-o-n carrion over carnage or dead bodies or corpses vultures circle over corpses and this brings us to lesson four associate jesus's second coming with birds for visibility and corpses for judgment and you say that doesn't sound very kind you're kind of making the second coming sound very wrathful and bloody and destructive yes i am christ's first coming is what lamb mercy forgiveness reconciliation second coming is lion carnage destruction wrath anger unleashed on a christ rejecting world so it could seem strange or even graphic to associate Jesus' second coming with vultures and dead bodies but i'm not the one that came up with it <laughs> jesus is the one that came up with this and we're going to see in a moment that it's completely fitting listen to what god said to job when he questioned him god said is it at your command god is questioning job and god says to job is it your command that the eagles mount up and make his nest on high on the rock he dwells and makes his home on the rocky crag and stronghold from there he spies out the prey his eyes behold it from far away his young ones suck up blood and where the slain are there is he so in other words vultures provide visibility you can tell where corpses are from great distances not because you can see the corpse but because you can see the vultures circling overhead and you're like oh, okay pastor scott we got it what is your point 
My point is, similarly, people are going to be able to see where the battle of Armageddon is from great distances, not because they can see the corpses, <laughs> but because they can see all of the vultures circling overhead because of the large amount of carnage when Jesus destroys his enemy. And with that, turn to Revelation 19. We won't turn back to Luke. Now, considering how slowly I typically go through verses, I'm guessing if I did these verses in Revelation 19, it'd probably take me two or three weeks. So we're going to have to go very quickly, consider this more of a survey of these verses to get the full picture. So this is the second coming. And you're going to get the idea that they vividly portray Christ's holy wrath against sinners. When you think of the second coming, think of the lion, not the lamb, and think of holy wrath against Christ-rejecting people. Verse 11. And, and can, I, can we just give me your attention for a second? Just give me your attention. Be blessed by these verses and the way they describe your king. Soak them in. This is not the most common view, and it's definitely not the common view that our world has of Jesus. But this is the King of Kings. This is the Lord of Lords that we're reading about here. Appreciate it. And appreciate the contrast to what the world says about Jesus. This is not how we frequently get to see him in the Gospels. Verse 11, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges, and he makes war. Jesus' first coming, he also came on an animal. Both comings, he's on an animal. The first coming, Zechariah 9.9, your king's coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. So this is the first coming. It says, humble to make peace between God and man, and it stands in incredibly stark contrast to the second coming on a white horse to make and judge where you could not have more extreme, incompatible, mutually exclusive reasons for coming. One of them is to make peace between God and man, and the second is to make war against man. So God is long-suffering, but his patience is exhausted with sinful, rebellious people. He's going to unleash his fury. So when you're seeing more bad things coming out about transgenderism, more perversions, more violence, more disregard for marriage, more abortions, murdering babies, more disregard for human life. You get so frustrated and you think, when is this? You're almost like Psalm 73, the psalmist who had to go in the house of God and then see their end before he repented and understood. And sometimes when we, we have to understand this is what's in store for these people. There is a judgment and a wrath coming against them for these perversions and wickednesses that we see. Look at verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Now, here's how you really mess up this verse. You say, oh, his robe's dipped in blood. Oh, this takes our mind back to the cross. This is Jesus. The blood we sing about, nothing but the blood. That's the blood. That's not the blood that's on him. It is not his blood here. Whose blood is on him? The people who are slaughtered. The people whose wrath he has poured it out against. The garments are looking ahead 
to the execution of his enemies this is the blood of his enemies that's on him so that's the thing you either accept christ's blood on the cross or you get your blood spilled on him when he slaughters you and jesus doesn't return alone look at verse 14 who's with him this is us the armies of heaven this is the church arrayed in fine linen white and pure even following on white horses it includes saints and angels there's a lot of verses i could give you to explain how we know solidly that this is the church here but here's just one verse first thessalonians 3 13 the lord may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our god and father at the coming of our lord jesus with all his saints at the coming of our lord jesus with his saints us we come with him there are angels with jesus matthew 25 31 when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him he'll sit on his glorious throne so in verse 14 when it says the armies of heaven that's the church the saints the angels coming to form this army so as believers we're with christ we're on white horses too like our king but here's what you need to know even though we're part of the army of heaven we're not doing any fighting we don't help in this battle there's no mention of us having weapons and that's because it is unnecessary because jesus accomplishes this victory by himself he does not need us to assist him so now for the most famous battle in scripture even most unbelievers have heard of it look at verse 15 from G this is the battle of armageddon from jesus's mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he'll rule them with a rod of iron so pause here we shouldn't think literally of a sword coming out of jesus's mouth when you think of a sword coming out of jesus's mouth a sword is a very common metaphor for what you say hey i've got my sword with me i'm going to look to my sword this is referring to the word of god coming out of jesus's mouth ephesians 6 17 the sword of the spirit which is the word of god so the idea is jesus wins this battle simply by his word or by speaking so when you can speak the universe into existence you can speak to destroy your enemies when you can speak people into existence you can speak their destruction and slaughter listen to these verses prophesying of this second thessalonians 2 8 the lord jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming it just seems like he shows up he arrives it's an anticlimactic battle it doesn't stretch on it's not a titanic struggle by any means he shows up and these people are destroyed isaiah 11 4 he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked look at verse 15 he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of god the almighty now a wine press was a trough in which workers stepped on grapes in their bare feet and this is why the word tread is used there he's going to tread how much strength does a grape have against a heel that's coming down against it that's how much strength these people have against jesus and the idea is the juice flows out of the wine press 
The grapes burst and the juice runs out of them. And it's a super vivid imagery for the blood spurting, flowing, following this slaughter that Jesus accomplishes. It is an awful amount of human carnage that's going to be present at this battle. We'll see just how bad it is in a moment. Look at verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And in these verses, there's a real emphasis on Jesus' name. Verse 11 says, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Verse 12, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Verse 13, the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Now we're told about this name. It looks like a title, but it's called a name because in ancient society, like that doesn't look like a name. To me, a name is Scott or Brian or Michael, but it says he has a name and that name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, that's not a name. That's a title. Why does it say it's a name? Because in ancient society, a name revealed a person's character. So the name emphasizes his sovereignty over all human rulers, especially appropriate here when Jesus is about to slaughter all of them. The location of the name is fascinating. It's on his thigh. What's typically kept on a thigh in ancient times? A sword. Psalm 45.3, gird your sword on your thigh. So the name could be here in the place of the sword, reminding us that the real sword is the word that's coming out of his mouth. Since he's riding on a horse when he comes out of heaven, the name on his thigh would be highly visible, like a banner. Nobody would miss it. And now we move to the next section, which describes the frightening holocaust. It's really unparalleled in all human history. And this brings us to lesson five. The battle of Armageddon is an execution versus a battle. The battle of Armageddon is an execution versus a battle. There is no conflict. Look at verse 17. This is how the battle begins. I saw an angel standing in the sun, an angel that was large enough, it seemed, to block out the sun. And with a loud voice, this angel calls to all the birds. Notice this. Now this takes us to Luke 17. Now we're seeing the birds or vultures from Luke 17, which is why we turned here. So we see the birds or vultures from Luke 17 that fly directly overhead, and the angel says to them, because the vultures identify the corpses, as Jesus said, come gather for the great supper of God, verse 18, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. So the battle of Armageddon begins with this angel summoning these birds, or we would think of vultures, to feed on the corpses of all those who will be killed. So they're like a cleanup crew. Did you notice there's two suppers? We didn't read early enough. But right here it says, gather for the great supper of God. You're part of this supper if you're not part of the marriage supper of the lamb so you get to repent and look to christ in faith or you get to and then be part of the marriage supper of the lamb or you get to reject him and then be part of the great supper of god with birds or vultures feasting on your dead corpse so by summoning them notice he summons them before the battle begins and it's, it shows a declaration of victory there hasn't been a battle yet. And the, and the angel says, come feed on the corpses that aren't even there yet. 
because it's looking in such confidence to the victory that belongs to Christ. You might have noticed the repetition of the word flesh. It occurs five times. It's like flesh, 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 flesh of men, flesh of horses, flesh of men, free and slave, flesh of captains, flesh of kings. Five times in this verse, and then one more time in verse 21. So God really wants to make sure that you don't miss just how much flesh or carnage there is here. Now we see Jesus' victory over the Antichrist and the false prophet. Verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him. So my suspicion is they think they're going to win. There's a large army that forms. There's a riverbed that's made dry for this army to walk. Probably a million-man army, it seems. You can read more about it in Revelation 16. But my suspicion is all of these commanders and captains and kings and rebels against Christ assemble here, believing that they're going to win this battle. Verse 19 again, I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him. So they want to make war against Christ sitting on the horse and against his army. So the Antichrist is joined by, by the way, beast is the Antichrist, if that, if that wasn't clear. And the Antichrist is joined by the kings of the earth and their armies to make war. And more than likely, guess who else joins them? The people we read in Luke 17 who were taken to this battle and made part of this army. Verse 20, the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, that's the other beast. So the Antichrist and false prophet who in its presence had done signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two, the Antichrist and false prophet, were thrown into the lake of fire. That's what we commonly think of as hell that burns with sulfur. So it does not pay to serve the devil. Interestingly, the devil is not the first inhabitant of hell. The devil doesn't go there for a thousand years until after the millennium. The first inhabitants seem to be the Antichrist and the false prophet, those most loyal to the devil. Of all the doctrines of the Christian faith, the doctrine of eternal punishment is one of the most rejected. Sentimentally or philosophically, it can be hard to for us to believe that people would suffer for all eternity in torment. It's hard for me to believe, but Scripture is undeniably clear about it, and this is one of those clear places. Because notice in the verse it says, they, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire. It, it's a strong statement against annihilation that you should bring up to Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses who attempt to present that false teaching to you that people cease existing. The last verse discussing the destruction of the armies, verse 21, the rest were slain by the sword that came out from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, sitting on, so this is Christ, and then again, all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So you notice the repetition. First, we're reminded about Jesus speaking and destroying his enemies, and then second, there's a focus again on the vultures gorging themselves on the corpses. So all remaining sinners in the world will have been executed, and the vultures are going to identify the location of the corpses of those taken, just like Jesus said in Luke 17. Now, I know this is not the most pleasant passage to read, but the Lord has put this here for us. Jesus preached about it in Luke 17. And when I read this, I'll tell you what it does for me. The entire week, thinking about Christ's second coming in the battle of Armageddon, I'm thankful that I'm on the right side. I'm thankful that I'm not part of this. 
I'm thankful that there is a great destruction coming against unbelievers, but that I've repented and put my faith in Christ and that I will not have to be part of this carnage. So I want to conclude with this. When Jesus returns to judge his enemies, there's a separation of the saved and the lost. The saved are going to be left to enter the glorious kingdom of God established on the earth. The unsaved are going to be taken away in judgment to this battle to be executed by Christ. So we want to make sure that we are not like those in Noah's day who were taken away by the flood or like those in Lot's day who were destroyed by the fire and brimstone or like Lot's wife whose heart was so committed to Sodom that she looked back and was killed. Now, we are regularly observing evidence. I'm not one who's going to stand up and say, when Christ is coming back. I believe that makes people false prophets when they do, and numerous have been wrong. But I will say this. We are regularly observing evidence that our day looks more and more like the days of Noah and the city of Sodom. We are seeing more evidence every day that our world is looking like the world that had to be judged before. Jesus can return for his church at any time, so we must be ready. If you have any questions about anything that I've taught or I can pray for you in any way, I will be at front after service. I consider it a privilege to speak with you. Father, I thank you for these verses, understandably graphic, a considerable emphasis on judgment. I pray that it would instill a great fear in the heart of any un, hearts of any unbelievers this morning and a great thankfulness in the hearts of all believers who do not need to be part of this. I thank you that instead of being on the earth to be destroyed, we get to be with Christ, returning with him from heaven. And so, Lord, we, we come before you with incredibly humble and grateful hearts for what Christ has done for us to reconcile us to you, taking the wrath that we deserve so that that wrath would not later have to be poured out on us. We thank you for your greatness and goodness, Lord, and we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.